Welcome to US Rail Journeys, Series 1, Episode 6, From Portland to Pasco on the Empire Builder. I've just arrived by taxi at Portland Union Station. As you can see from the photograph I took of its address plate, it's at 800 Northwest 6th Avenue here in Portland, Oregon. As I was walking along the pavement from the taxi that brought me to the station, I was greeted by one of the taxi drivers queuing, waiting for passengers. He was the man who actually drove me on my arrival from the station to my hotel two days ago. We had a quick chat about my impressions of Portland and he's wished me well on my way. Construction of Union Station began in 1890 and the station opened in 1896, built at a cost of $300,000. The most notable part of the structure is the 150-foot tall Romanesque revival clock tower which, in typical US fashion, had neon signs added to it in 1948, and the photographs show that well. The station was put on the National Historic Register of Historic Places in 1975. In 2016, 590,000 passengers passed through the station. Three major Amtrak trains use the station, the Cascade service, which runs from Vancouver in Canada to Eugene in Oregon. The Coast Starlight, which we took from San Francisco, running in total from Los Angeles to Seattle. And of course, the Empire Builder, train number 28. The main waiting area is magnificently built with wonderful wooden benches that I'm sure have been there forever. And as you can see from the photograph I've taken of the detail of the ceiling, it's quite incredible the amount of work that went into the building of this station. Sat in the Metropolitan Lounge, we're slightly out of the general concourse of the station and it's nice and quiet and the chairs are somewhat more comfortable. We're waiting for our portion of the Empire Builder to finish being serviced. We have now been called to join our train. This is train 28, half of the Empire Builder, which at Spokane will join with train 8 to form the complete Empire Builder and go on to Chicago. I'm now going to cross the tracks in the dismal rain that is coming down at the moment and find my superliner roomette. Once I'm there, have found my way around the train, I shall bring you more about our journey to Chicago. It's 4.45 and bang on time, the Empire Builder is pulling away from the platform here at Portland Station, station code PDX. I can hear the power going on in the diesel locomotive at the front of the train. The Empire Builder, like all long-distance trains west of the Mississippi River, uses Amtrak's double-deck superliner coaches. 
and the Empire Builder was the first train to be fully equipped with superliners, starting nearly 38 years ago on the 28th of October 1979. The train was relaunched during the summer of 2005 with newly refurbished coaches and saw a significant increase in passengers. The train travels daily between the Pacific Northwest and Chicago, along major portions of the Lewis and Clark Trail. We will go past the beautiful Cascade Mountains, the spectacular Columbia River Gorge. We will travel through the Glacier National Park, the High Desert and the Big Sky Country. We travel on the plains of North Dakota, past the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul and on to Chicago. It is said that the Empire Builder offers one of the most majestic routes on the Amtrak system. I'm looking forward to seeing it. The Great Northern Railway first ran the Empire Builder on June 11, 1929. They named the train in honour of the company's founder, James J. Hill, who was known as the Empire Builder. I said at the beginning that the train has two numbers, 8 and 28. And this is because, when travelling east, the train has two different starting points. Seattle, and that's train 8. There's also train 28 starting from Portland, and we're on the Portland section. The two sections join together at Spokane, where we stop around midnight. The Empire Builder is reported to be one of the most popular long-distance trains on the whole Amtrak system and the fare revenue covers about 65% of the total cost of operating the train. In 2016, 454,600 people travelled on the train. As we leave Portland at the beginning of our journey, we pass through an industrial area with lots of sidings for businesses who own their own private rail cars. A little further on we pass through a major marshalling yard where there are a lot of oil tanker trucks. We then pass over three different bridges in relatively short succession. The first was the one that crossed the Willamette River and then the 505 yard bridge over the Oregon Slough, a second channel of the Columbia River to reach Hayden Island. From there the train crosses over the 935-yard Burlington Northern Railroad Bridge to cross the state line and enter Washington State. For those whose geography is not particularly good, Washington State is in the far northwest of the United States, whereas Washington, the capital of the United States, is a district of Columbia in the east. <laughs> Just under 15 minutes after leaving Portland, we have reached our first stop, Vancouver, Washington. Now the Vancouver that most of us know is on the west coast of Canada, and the city was named after Captain George Vancouver, who was a shipmate of Captain Cook and commander of the British expedition to chart the northwest. Until 1846, there was joint control of this area between the British and the Americans, but that ended with the signing of the Oregon Treaty giving the US full control. On leaving Vancouver, we will pass through an area of plum orchards on both sides of the tracks. A major use of the plums grown in this area is for the production of prunes, and so we also pass prune dryers as well. To the north is the nearly 10,000 foot high volcano Mount St Helens which was inactive until it erupted on May the 18th 1980. 
Willie Nelson began his career in Vancouver in 1956 with a recording of the song Lumberjack. The station here at Vancouver is a unique two-sided station in a Y-track layout, with the Empire Builder using the southeast side of the station, whilst the Cascades and Coast Starlight use the northwest side to travel on to Seattle. In 2016, 96,900 passengers used this station. So as we're passing along the Columbia River, in somewhat wet weather, in fact, pretty hazy looking at the far side of it, but then the Columbia River is quite wide at this stage. I'm with Gail Ray and Bud Potter, and they're travelling only for part of the journey to Spokane, where they'll be getting off before the other half of the Empire Builder joins this train. Okay, so tell me, how often do you travel by train? Um, I typically travel by train... This year alone will have been about four or five times. You know, it, it averages between three to five times a year, just depending on what I've got going on. I do a lot of conventions and events and things like this, so it just is based around how often I go for a convention or event. So. so is that you going to work at the event or the convention or going along as part of the audience? little bit of both i i work some of the conventions i work like comic cons and uh those kind of festivals and events and then sometimes i'll go just for fun to enjoy myself and relax but the train is always the best way to go in my opinion because you don't have to think about anything once you step on the train as they used to say in advertising in britain all about 30 years ago let the train take the strain there's no snow that way to battle in the winter time here bad roads and whatever goes with it yeah. and uh, do you often travel with your parents or this is the first time actually this is this is our first trip on a train ever and we haven't gotten out a whole lot lately in the last year or so so this is kind of a treat for for all of us so. well that sounds great You've used trains before, though, have you? In Europe, yeah. This is my first train trip in the United States, and my train trips in Europe were in 1958, I believe, was the year. Well, I hope you have a really good journey. And how are you getting back home once you've got to Spokane? We're still taking the train back. We're going to get on at 2.45 a.m., and travel back on this to Portland, get in at 10 a.m., got about a four-hour layover there, and then train back down to Eugene as well. So, And just to give you an idea, my dad used to do, uh, he was a school bus driver, and he took the train from, he's taken the other end, he's went from Spokane to Chicago to pick up a bus to drive back school out bus. to <laughs> the Pacific Northwest. Out to, in the military, I traveled the train three times from Spokane to El Paso, Texas. Well, thank you very much. Even though it's a cloudy and wet day, the scenery we, we are passing through is absolutely stunning. The Columbia River is vast. There are islands scattered all over. It must be getting on for a mile across to the far side, 
and on the far side there are small mountains, large hills maybe, with the clouds scudding over the tops of them. To my left it's a bit lighter and maybe it's clearing up a little bit. We shall see. We travel through the Columbia Gorge formed by the river for about 55 miles. It was formed as the river cut through the ancient volcanic lava rock. Lewis and Clark's Corps of Discovery reached the river in October 1805. It was named after Captain Robert Gray's ship, which first sailed to its mouth in that year. The Pioneers, who flooded in from the east using the Oregon Trail, attempted to navigate down this extremely dangerous and untamed river. Today the gorge has federally protected status as a national scenic area and is also a very popular recreational area. We're currently passing a sawmill with lots and lots of felled trees piled up. As we've passed along the Columbia Gorge, we passed Beacon Rock, which is in the Beacon Rock State Park, about 35 miles from the station of Vancouver. The rock was named by the explorers Lewis and Clark, and is 848 feet tall. The rock has been used by voyagers as a guide for the river for centuries. The Lewis and Clark expedition measured tides in the river here, indicating that they were approaching the sea. On the Oregon side, we pass several waterfalls. The highest, Multnama Falls, cascades 620 feet into the Columbia River. We pass the Bonneville Dam, built in 1938, the first dam on the river and more than half a mile from end to end. The dam has enough power to supply 500,000 average homes with electricity. It was built by, and is still managed by, the US Army Corps of Engineers. It includes fish ladders in order to give salmon access to their breeding grounds. The salmon leap up the ladder to return to the upper Columbia River where they were born. In this area the mountains range from 2,000 to 5,000 feet high. At Sheridan's Point there is Fort Rains, an old Army US blockhouse standing on the point of land that juts out near the Upper Cascades at Point Sheridan. In 1855 settlers and soldiers defended this trading area from Indian attacks under the command of Lieutenant Philip Sheridan, who later became a famous Civil War general, forcing Robert E. Lee to surrender. Bridge of the Gods replaced a natural rock bridge which the Indians said was destroyed by their deity in anger when his two sons argued over a young maiden. The two sons became Mount Hood and Mount Adams and the maiden became Mount St Helens. The bridge was created some 300 years ago by the so-called Bonneville Slide, a landslide across the Columbia River that resulted in a dam 200 feet high. About an hour and a half into our journey, we get to our next stop, Bingen. It's an unmanned station opened in 1992, situated 60 miles east of Portland. It serves two adjacent towns, Bingen and White Salmon, named by immigrants after Bingen, a beautiful town along the Rhine in Germany, and the White Salmon River. In 2016, 3,700 passengers used this station. 
there is major fruit farming and fruit orchards in the area. Across the river from Bingen White Salmon is the city of Hood River, which is in Oregon. As we pass through this beautiful countryside, the rain has stopped and there are even cracks in the clouds with a bit of sunshine and blue sky above. So maybe it won't get dark as early as I thought it would. The train is now accelerating away and passing a long goods train that is parked waiting for us to pass by. As we continue on down the river, we've just passed a cargo vessel. But the cargo vessel's different in as much as it has a stern paddle wheel, just like the old boats that used to ply the rivers with gambling and drink in the 1850s and onwards. This countryside that we're now going through is far less lush and much drier than the first part of our journey and we're travelling right along the edge of the river. It is quite magnificent but the forests are gone and the slopes, though there are some trees, are also very scrubby. just passed through the four tunnels that are a short distance west of Lyle, which is a small town of 530 people. Opposite the first of these tunnels is Memelus Island, an ancient Indian burial ground. Mount Hood is the highest mountain in Oregon at 11,235 feet and is one of many peaks that have perpetual glaciers and snowfields. This is a characteristic of the Cascade Range across the states of Oregon and Washington. Mount Hood has six ski areas, with Timberline offering the only year-round lift served skiing in North America. As we carry on down the Columbia River Valley, we have just passed the town of Dallasport, which is quite a significant industrial area, and also the Dallas Dam. Now, Dallas is the word for trough, and this area was so called because of the narrow and dangerous navigation channel in the river. The dam is 8,700 feet long and construction was started in 1952. It took the Army Corps of Engineers five years to complete it and the reservoir behind the dam is named Lake Sililo and runs for 24 miles up the river channel. Alongside the dam is a navigation block to enable boats to pass and the dam provides the area with irrigation water, hydroelectric power and a reservoir for water sports. We're now travelling at virtually water level along the Columbia River Gorge and we pass through Avery. The grey clouds have completely cleared above and it's a beautiful sunset tonight with lovely red colour in the sky. We're now slowing and just about ready to stop at Wishram. Departure 1855. In a census taken in the year 2000, the population was 213. The town was originally named Fallbridge, but the name changed to Wishram to honour the Wishram tribe of Native Americans who gathered here to trade for salmon. There is a three-storey rectangular mansion up on the hill called the Mary Hill Museum. 
This was built by Sam Hill, a wealthy Northern Pacific Railway attorney, and it was built as a home for his wife, who was the daughter of James J. Hill, president of the Great Northern Railway. Unfortunately, Sam's wife refused to live there, and so it was dedicated to be a museum in honour of Queen Marie of Romania. The museum houses the largest collection of Rodin sculptures outside Paris. On the hill east of the museum is Sam Hill's replica of Stonehenge, erected as a memorial to those from Washington State who died in the First World War. The station consists of a platform and saw 1,330 passengers in 2016. And whilst it's one of the smallest communities served by Amtrak, it is an important gateway to the recreational facilities of the Columbia River. We pass the John Jay Dam, a hydroelectric dam. It was constructed between 1958 and 1961 at a cost of $511 million. The dam is 5,900 feet in length and has 16 turbine generator units, each capable of generating 135,000 kilowatts giving the whole complex a capacity of 2.16 megawatts. It also has the highest single lift lock in the world, able to raise a ship approximately 110 feet. We pass through North McNary, named after Charles L. McNary, a US Republican Senator from Oregon, who served from 1917 to 1944. He was the Republican vice presidential candidate in 1940 when he and his running mate lost to Franklin D. Roosevelt. Our next station is Pasco, where we leave at 2057. This is where the Englishman David Thompson claimed the Western lands for Great Britain with a simple message tied to a pole. However, Britain's claim didn't hold and the US took over the disputed territory in 1846. The area was frequented by fur trappers and gold traders. The building of the Northern Pacific Railway in the 1880s brought many settlers to the area. And for many years it was a small railway town until the completion of the Grand Coulee Dam in 1941 brought irrigation and agriculture to the area. Currently the population estimate for the city is 70,560 people. It is the furthest point up the Columbia River that can be reached by seagoing ships. The railway station serves the three cities of Pasco, Richland and Kennewick and was used by 23,200 passengers in 2016. This podcast has been made by the Mr T Podcast Studio. Thank you very much for listening. 